In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Thanks for joining us. You're on Two Shrinks Pod. My name is Hunter Mulcair and I'm here with Amy. Hi. Amy Donaldson. This is a psychology show where we talk about psychological research, uh, usually within the frame of clinical work, but sometimes also just to do with things that we find interesting. Yeah. And I hope you enjoy the show. We've got an interesting thing uh, we're going to talk about today, which is the dark triad of personality. Amy is going to talk through definitionally what that is, or definitively what that (laughs) is, and we're going to tag team and talk about different research studies that have investigated this and looked at the dark triad in relation to a whole lot of really kind of interesting and diverse topics. So it should be a good show. Before we start, how are you, Amy? Weary. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, enthusiastic. Enthusiastic. But weary. Yes, weary on this cold, cold night. Uh, Look, I have to say the Milo, I am almost all the way through, is uh, nourishing. Excellent. (laughs) Good to hear. Take it away. All right, so I feel like we need some kind of spooky music at the start, but, you know, the dark triad. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so the dark triad is personality concept that has three elements to it. A little bit like attachment, which we spoke about last time, it spans both relational concepts and your sense of self. So the three parts to it are psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. Uh, I'll talk about each one. So psychopathy involves a feeling of uh, callousness, lacking empathy, being quite superficial in your emotions. It also usually involves manipulative behavior, frequent lying, lacking responsibility for your actions, a lot of risk-taking behavior, but then also this overlay of charm. So it's been identified in both criminal settings and other settings like occupationally and it's been quite a controversial concept some people have criticized that it has a sort of inherent moral judgment to it that in theory and psychology if we're you know applying labels to people ideally you'd kind of want it to be as judgment free as possible of course it's not 100% possible but yeah. yeah psychopathy by its very nature has those kind of terms that perhaps we wouldn't usually use clinically. Yeah. Yeah, like I don't know about you, but I kind of avoid saying that a client was manipulative or lying or... Well, I think that the terms you use can be quite pejorative. Yeah. uh, But really from a behavioural perspective, so a true behaviourist perspective where you're just actually classing a set of behaviours, then manipulation is correct, callousness in terms of like a lack of emotional affect around what they do. Absolutely. It fits the behavior. Yeah. And there's a really good book called The Psychopath Test. Yeah. I think it's John Ronson. Yeah. And that that, that gives a very, very accessible discussion around psychopaths and psychopathy. Yeah. And 
the lack of emotionality that they have. So Absolutely. And I think in that he does some training with hair. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Hair uh, is one of the key theorists in this area. It's H-A-R-E. Yeah. If you're looking like a rabbit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So hair built upon some previous work by Cleckley who had defined psychopathy and added in some of the more Machiavellian traits, which we'll talk about. Um, So before that, it had a little bit less of the manipulation and cunning kind of elements to it. In terms of DSM, probably the parallel is antisocial personality disorder. And in the current version, you can specify if someone has psychopathic features as part of that. I mean, the notes that I got on psychopathy was that they're impulsive, little no regard for others, mm-hmm. tolerate danger well, and can be highly aggressive. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, that's a kind of a, a fairly tight summary. And I think as well, it's one of those topics that in, there's quite a difference between media versus research. So, you know, whenever you see someone who's described as a psychopath in something that's sort of a movie or news or things like that they're always violent but that's not always the case and we'll come back to that in some of the research that we talk about that it can play out in all different parts of people's lives yeah so the second component to the dark triad is narcissism so this is another one that's probably popularly known and it involves a focus on yourself And viewing yourself as someone who's unique and special. So you sort of exaggerate your achievements. At the same time, you're hypersensitive to any criticisms or insults, things that might undermine those exaggerations. And you have difficulty with empathy and tend to exploit others for your own gains. And the the last key component of it is a sort of flattery of those in power and a kind of, yeah, a, a seeking of, of power and of um, noteworthiness. Yeah, aggrandizement. Yeah, exactly. It's really interesting reading about narcissism and, and the colourful language written yeah. about it. The brief summary I got was like over overinflated view of themselves, vain, oh, a strong, strong sense of entitlement. Yeah. So the world is currently experiencing... <laughs> Uh, a particular individual who is narcissistic to a T. And if you look at some of the literature uh, written about the treatment of narcissistic personality disorder, uh, it's it's very, very interesting. Um, And it's one of those topics that has been around for a really long time. So in a brief bit of reading, I sort of found some articles that spoke about it being mentioned in psychological literature since the early days of psychology, so sort of the 1800s. There's also acknowledgement that some parts of narcissism are a normal part of development. So anyone who's got children or spends time with children will Mm. know that they're entirely focused on themselves. They do have trouble understanding other people's perspectives and, you know, exaggerate the things that they've done and all of those things. But the issue... And deny reality. And deny reality, absolutely. Um, But the issue is when that extends out of childhood and it doesn't doesn't dissipate and um, continues. Yeah. Yeah. And find themselves in positions of extreme power. Absolutely. (laughs) And again, parallel-wise with the DSM, um, there's narcissistic PD, which pretty much aligns with the concept of narcissism. The final thing to say about that is that some researchers have also put forward subtypes of narcissism. So that people aren't necessarily sort of grandiose and exaggerating of their achievements, but that for some people that sort of inadequate sense of self 
and that sensitivity to insults is far closer to the surface and so they tend to seek approval from other people in a way that's uh, probably closer to some of the other kind of personality disorders of sort of reassurance seeking behaviors and things like that that you might see in you know borderline personality disorder or Mm. things like that yeah i was doing some reading about it today uh looking at schema therapy descriptions of Mm-hmm. narcissistic personality disorder and how you can conceptualize that and they talk about that one of the ways in which you understand is that they usually have like a lonely child mode which is got a defectiveness set of beliefs they have a self-aggrandizing mode essentially where they use that to block away or get away from they sort of overcompensate for how they're yeah how they're feeling that's right and then when they're on their own they will they will have a detached self-soothing mode so that you know that's when they can engage in kind of compulsive behaviors addictive behaviors all sorts of stuff yeah so it's quite interesting pattern it sort of highlights the difference between someone who's confident in themselves and someone who's narcissistic in that there's sort of that core feeling of emptiness and insecurity and defectiveness and all of that sort of thing with a layer over the outside i I think the key word i would use is fragility yeah yeah absolutely fragile self-worth yeah so it can be filled up but But shattered but but then it gets drained out very quickly or it gets shattered yeah and there's this constant drive in in certain cases is constant drive for that so very interesting yeah machiavellianism so machiavellianism uh is the last portion of the triad and that involves being cunning selfish uh using other people for your own gains uh so a lot of instrumentality and manipulativeness and a focus on achievement and winning at any cost Uh, So it's been found to be associated with low emotional intelligence, low empathy and low emotion recognition. And it was first tested for from about the 1960s. So it's um, one of the the newer ones in the in the triad as a concept. So altogether, you end up with someone who is able to engage with other people with charm, but has little depth or genuine kind of connection to other people or uh, little awareness of their own emotions. They're able to manipulate, lie and use others to achieve their goals uh, without feeling much remorse. And despite building this grandiose picture of themselves on the outside, they feel quite fragile and insecure and vulnerable to criticism, frustration, anything that kind of gets in the way yeah. of what they're after. So that's sort of the, the picture of the dark triad as a cluster, yeah. personality traits, yep. and probably people who are listening are already kind of seeing some parallels or some ways that that could kind of play out in different fields. Yeah, and what's interesting about these is that they, the concepts overlap, yeah. but they are distinct and they've been able to show that sort of statistically that they are distinct. But as we might be able to mention in the research we're going to talk about, it's quite clear that looking at, say, just narcissism doesn't explain the full picture in some cases. And actually, by accounting for these other dark triad traits, then you get a better explanation of particular types of behavior and stuff like that. So, mm, Sort of that jigsaw puzzle. I think what's interesting about the dark triad is that they started looking at it as a group in addition to what we call uh, the big five factors of personality. So there's lots of different elements of personality, but they come back to, or can we reduce down to five factors? But then what they've found is by looking at these specific traits, the dark triad traits, in addition to the big five, you can actually explain a whole lot of additional behavior, or if you want to use a statistical term, variance. So 
Uh, and I think that's quite interesting. So yeah, absolutely. I don't, I don't know much about the background about why they started doing that. but No, and I actually I couldn't find a huge amount of information about why. I think, you know, in general what I found was sort of like we're trying to understand what contributes to this behaviour that uh, is socially out of the norm and yeah. uh, that we're struggling to conceptualise with what we've got so far. Yeah. yeah. And any study that can account for more than just one aspect is always better. Absolutely. So why don't we go through a couple of different studies. Uh, hopefully I can read my writing and <laughs> we can go through it. We'll try and try and get through as many as possible because we I think that, that the literature is quite rich. And so, so the first study I wanted to talk about is uh, titled The Dark Triad and Compassion, Psychopathy and Narcissism's Unique Connection to Observe Suffering. This is by Sherman A. Lee and Jeffrey A. Gibbons uh, from the United States, Christopher Newport uh, University. This is published um, this year, 2017, in Personality in Individual Differences. Always a complicated journal article name to say. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Just wait till they get a pronunciation of some names coming up. <laughs> Just I, butcher them. I, so I did a health psychology doctorate and one of the subjects that we did in that was about medical stuff and mm. we, I kid you not, had a two-hour lecture where we went through and we there was three students yeah. and a teacher where we just went through saying out loud medical terms. <laughs> How much did you pay for that course? I think I'm still paying it off. <laughs> <coughs> so it was worth it. <laughs> My, if anyone's heard me pronounce things, it didn't, it didn't help at all. <laughs> uh, this article looked at the dark triad and suffering and or observed suffering and the emotional responses with that. So what they looked at is state compassion. So uh, previous research has looked at trait empathy, uh, which sort of shows similar patterns with uh, the dark triad. But st- state compassion is a bit different to, a bit different to trait trait empathy so to explain what state and trait is it's a good way to think about like i always think about state and trait anxiety so trait if you've got high trait anxiety that means you're kind of an anxious person yeah whereas state anxiety is how anxious are you right now currently Mm -hmm. um so you can be a high trait anxiety person but not actually be that anxious right now yeah be low on state although you probably would be more likely to be high or the opposite or the opposite or you can be a low tray anxiety person but be quite high yeah right? so in, in anxiety on a given day for whatever reason so that's kind of the thing so anyway so they're looking at state compassion so what they did was they looked they got 156 college students they got them to watch three films film one and three were neutral kind of i think they were just a film about you know, there was just people walking around or something. It was fairly short. Yeah. And the sec, but in the middle, they had a sad clip where they showed a child reacting to a father dying. It's out mm. of a movie called The Champ, a 1979 movie. I don't actually know the movie, but no, me neither. it's quite clear they've used this methodology previously and it's known to elicit a sad response. And then they measured, they got them to measure the personality constructs. And before these films, and then they got them to measure state compassion and empathy after the second film, and then they measured uh, anxiety and sadness after each film. They were able to determine whether uh, there was a negative emotional response after watching this thing. So you normally think, watch something neutral, nothing, watch something where someone, a small child is getting sad about it, their father dying, 
you'd feel sad or anxious or something and then you watch a neutral thing you probably your emotion probably would have gone down but probably would still be higher than film number one yeah so that's that's the model kind of sounds a bit perverse to do (laughs) yeah but compared to the history of psychological studies exactly that's that's what i was thinking it's not too bad it's not too bad so just quickly to look at the results to so, get past an ethics board. Oh, uh, yeah. Easy. Quite easily. Yeah. Easy. Hmm. So, so they found that psychopathy negatively predicted state compassion. So that would kind of fit with our kind of expectations. And this was mediated by uh, empathy. So basically, you, when you would view a sad film clip, you'd empathetically see the... You would, if you weren't a psychopath, you'd empathetically see a child's view. You'd be able to take their perspective we be able to feel the child's inner experiences, so it's emotional empathy, and then you would feel that emotion. Mm-hmm. And people who are in psychopath, psychopathy just wouldn't. Yeah. Like that, that process just wasn't happening at all. They were just essentially unmoved by... They were just watching a film as if they were watching the neutral. That's it. Yeah. They, just, they were just unmoved by it, yeah. which is a bit different to kind of being sort of uh, purposefully distant from it. Absolutely. So... Um, Narcissism, it was positively associated with state compassion, which is kind of interesting. So they were able to be compassionate. So, and it was explained by being able to have empathy for the child. And so that might seem a bit odd. You know, the suggestion for that is that narcissists would be biased in their reporting of being able to be empathy. Yeah. So they say, I do empathy really well, I think would be the kind of thing. It's the um, proportion of the. <laughs> the portion of the podcast where impersonations come in. <laughs> it's late. Um, I, what I like, though, that I think that people at home are really missing is that you've got the hand gestures perfect. <laughs> I was really trying not to do that. The um, So, but I, I thought what's more interesting explanation. <laughs> I'm doing the hand gestures again. So, what I thought was a more interesting explanation was that and I thought perhaps more plausible is that narcissists actually need to be able to be empathetic to maintain social connections and interactions so that they can then keep their fragile self-esteem validated. Yeah. Yeah, So it serves a a function. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's a feedback mechanism to maintain self-worth, empathetic habits, maintain social connections, which I think I, I, I like that explanation better. Yeah. Machiavellianism seemed to be unrelated to state compassion, so it wasn't okay. positive related or negative related. So, and they, they sort of said, "Well, this, this result's unexpected. We're unsure why." You know, normally it's associated with trait empathy, uh, but only in a small way. So maybe this measure didn't pick it up. But th- then they had this other more interesting way of looking at it, which was that the self-reporting of state compassion in this context served no purpose. Yeah. So if you're hard Machiavellianism. There's no purpose for you to say, well, you know, I felt something. No. So they just didn't do it. Yep. So, which I thought was kind of... Yeah. That, that no utility, of, so... Yeah, no utility, which kind of comes to this like really interesting kind of uh, psychological process going on. So that was that. So I think that that kind of gets at a, a flavor of some of the psychological processes that go on. And then that's and backed up by this sort of really classic experimental psychology design. Yeah, nice. The nice type paper. What's, yeah. What's the one you wanted to go through? Uh, I'll go through one that uh, has a couple of parallels to 
to the one that you just spoke about. Uh, it's called Dark Triad Personality Traits and Adolescent Cyberaggression by Sarah Pabian and colleagues. It's also in Personality and Individual Difference. <laughs> I think all of mine are. Uh, my other one is too, <laughs> uh, from 2015. So this study looked at cyber aggression, which they classified as any intentional harm towards a person or a group online. So it could be uh, cyber bullying, um, it could be uh, sort of threatening emails, sort of derogatory behavior, anything that sort of fits into that category. Uh, they did a survey with 324 adolescents aged between 14 and 18 and they administered a few questionnaires one was the short dark triad which sd3 yep as you may imagine did you see that the one of the other questionnaires is the dirty dozen i have that in my other study (laughs) (laughs) brilliant They also uh, asked them to fill out a Facebook cyber aggression measure, which was about the types of behaviours that they'd engaged in online. And then also a Facebook intensity scale, which was about the number of friends they had, the amount of time spent on Facebook and attitudes towards Facebook and their interaction with it. They used structural equation modelling, which always impresses me because I... I have no idea how to actually do it. In the last pod, we were talking about being able to put boxes and arrows into your research paper. Structural equation modeling is statistical. Boxes and arrows is very impressive. Yep. Yep, absolutely. And this this article had a beautiful, beautiful graph. The the advice I got when I was doing my doctorate from one of the stats guys was, don't do it. (laughs) Fair enough. Complicated. Don't do it. So what they found was that a third of the participants reported that they'd engaged in at least one type of cyber aggression in the last three months. The most common activity was saying things uh, on Facebook that were intended to embarrass someone. Uh, That was at 17.6%, followed by sending insulting comments or messages repeatedly to someone, and that was 15.1%. So uh, when comparing the relationship between the dark triad and Facebook use and cyber aggression they found uh, the dark triad plus facebook intensity accounted for 33.6 percent of the variance Uh, and so separately linked to cyber aggression were psychopathy and facebook intensity Uh, the other factors weren't independently related to cyber aggression but all of the dark triad traits were significantly related to one another and an intensive Facebook use was associated with psychopathy and Machiavellianism but not with narcissism which really surprised me because I I guess I was thinking about Facebook as a you would be using Facebook more and putting more of a um, emphasis on Facebook as a sort of means of communicating and putting your image but then, yeah, maybe, out there. Maybe it's a more suitable domain for Machiavellianism. Yeah, because it serves a function. It serves a function. Hmm. So they found that boys were higher in Machiavellianism, psychopathy and psych- cyber aggression, whereas girls were higher in Facebook intensity. And they found that younger um, adolescents were higher on psychopathy than older adolescents. Yeah. Which I guess speaks to some of the, some of that developmental kind of nature that we mentioned before. That it's kind of 
uh, normal to be a bit insular. Yeah, uh, or egocentric. As an egocentric as a younger adolescent and sort of age out of it or develop more socially adaptive processes. This totally explains interactions with younger people. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And so then the last thing was that Facebook intensity didn't mediate the relationship between traits and aggression. So the traits didn't predict intensity. They just sort of co-occurred with Mm -hmm. one another. So... Which which dark triad was the one that was associated with cyberbullying the most? Uh, psychopathy. Yeah. Uh, independently. Yeah. And then psychopathy and Machiavellianism was associated with intensity of use. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So it sort of mediated yeah. through it. And actually the relationship with psychopathy and cyberaggression was pretty high for psychology. It was 0. 0.6. Wow. That's, that's high. Yeah. And intensity was 0. 0.35. So. Yeah. It's the bit where we start to kind of get interested, but yeah. But I wonder, I wonder with that, I wonder how that compares with Dark Triad and just bullying for the same age group. I yeah, me too. I wonder whether there'd be any difference. Like, and I wondered about adult as well. Yeah, because I mean, you know, psychopathy related to bullying, cyberbullying, yeah, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it all kind of fit logically with those concepts and with what might contribute to those kind of behaviours of belittling other people or... Yeah. Harassment, those sort of things. It's surprising that narcissism didn't kind of come up. Machiavellian maybe be a bit more yeah. strategic or something. But. Yeah. So, there you go. So, going on from where Amy was talking about, the article I'm going to talk about is The Dark Triad Across Academic Majors. So, this is by Anna Vidal and Dorth Thompson from Denmark. That, again, is in personality and individual differences in 2017. So, it must hmm. actually be quite a hot topic at the moment. The research question really is, are there more dark personalities within fields of law and business than there are among <laughs> academic fields or other other fields? And do they become this way because of socialization and schooling? Yeah. Or is it sort of, sort of like if you've got these personalities, are you attracted to those kinds of fields? So there's, and they talk about it, there's this thing like, oh, well, you know, if you're in business and if you're in law and then you're exposed to this aspect of human nature and so you kind of become hardened to it or uh, that you pick up those kinds of yeah. things. Is kind of one sociological explanation for it or something. And so this was kind of testing okay. this kind of Sort idea. of chicken or the egg. Yeah, nature, sort of a funny nature versus nurture mm. kind of thing. I think I know. <laughs> yeah, that's probably more psychological. <laughs> So, I Sorry. mean, I think that that's where, I, I think I know which, like I, I would be thinking, well, you know, maybe personality. Mm. I certainly think that people who are attracted to psychology because their particular personality yeah. traits, yeah. it's not uniform across the, no. across the thing. But but we sort of seek out what's familiar and what fits in with yeah. with who we are. Yeah, what you're interested in, yeah. that kind of stuff. So, so what they did was they, it's a Danish study. They got 487 students Mm -hmm. in the first year i think yeah so before they could have got socialized and they're either from psychology or they're doing a psychology major an economics slash business major law or a a political science major okay poli science probably what i'll end up calling it and they did the neo and Mm -hmm. they did the short dark triad the previous previous researchers sort of looked at and said that law and business and economics majors are lower lower on Tray agreeableness than mm-hmm. students enrolled in other majors such as psych. 
Okay. Uh, some humanity. So there's a little bit of background about, yeah, you know what, there are some personality differences that they've been able to find. Pretty easy study to run, really. Yeah. Um, and they often get students to fill out questionnaires as part of psychology research studies as part of their course requirements or course credit or something. So it's yeah. really, really... Captive audience. Captive audience. This is why there's a lot of research that's done on university students, which is kind of problematic in some respects, but also kind of quite useful. In Either respects. that or they pay them and they get to spend it on beer. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. But, yeah. So, but, you know, I, I worry that there's like a large section of research that is based on the people who could get into university. So. Yeah, missing out a substantial chunk of the population. So, there's a kind of a lot of results here. I'll try, I've tried to summarise them here. What they found is that economic students, economic students were higher Machiavellianism than all others. Okay. And higher on narcissism than psychologists, uh, psychology students and political science students, which I've got to say definitely fits with my personal experience. Mine too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, law uh, was higher on Machiavellianism than psych- psychology students, but no differences for narcissism. Uh, yeah. Psychology students were higher on neuroticism. Of course. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Then economics or po- political science students higher on agreeableness and openness than law students or economic students. Okay. Political science students were higher on openness and agreeableness than economics and law students and lower on conscientiousness. What was interesting is no differences according to psychopathy. Huh. So there's no differences between these majors and psychopathy. So That's not what I expected. No, no. So really it's about Machiavellianism and narcissism. Sort of showing so that. the way you present yourself in the world and... More of that kind of utility focus. Well, I wouldn't say present. I was just that well, you're thinking that display. you're really thinking yeah. that you're really really great. Yeah, perception, sort of self promotion, I suppose. But I mean, yeah. also like narcissism kind of gets a bad name. But I think that people can be narcissistic for good reason. Yeah, like, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Like I've certainly met in the medical realm people who are like I would say full of themselves and narcissistic. Yeah, but they're so incredibly intelligent <laughs> that you know that. You kind of go, well, sort of you know, forgive their sins. You, you kind of go, well, you know, maybe there's a good reason for that. So, mm. I mean, I don't understand the, the, the true background development of narcissism, mm. uh, but it is, it is kind of interesting. So, they did some interesting analysis looking at the different effect sizes of mm-hmm. what was going on. And they basically described the research as saying that economics and business majors were the darkest personalities in the psychology students were the brightest personalities hmm. and Lauren Polisci was somewhere in the middle. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you wonder whether you could argue that uh, bias. <laughs> there's, a, <laughs> there's a bias there. Uh, but, you know, I think that, I mean, you could, you know, psychology students were quite neurotic. So, yeah. uh, they sort of suggest that, you know, they think that these personalities are drawn to the fields and reflects different motivations for entering the field, which I think makes perfect sense that it's not really a socialization effect if you're desiring power and wealth you're really going to go into psychology probably not no you're going to go into business or economics something like that interesting yeah i thought that was kind of interesting Hmm. you all right let's swing back to adolescence again yeah well this is kind of university students this is kind of yeah yeah older adolescents older adolescents yeah so taking a, a trip to germany uh, to look at the utility of the dark triad model in the prediction of the self-reported and behavioural risk-taking behaviours among adolescents. That did not sound like you were reading it at all. No. <laughs> <laughs> I 
The lead author is Marta Maleza, um, and this is in Personality and Individual Differences in 2016. So this study looked at the predictive capacity of the dark triad in explaining self-reported and behaviour-based risk-taking in adolescents. And so what they did was that they got a group of adolescents to complete the Dirty Dozen, (laughs) 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 the dark triad measure. I think we maybe on our website we need to list our favourite acronym questionnaires over time. We'll just create yeah, a list. Yeah, I think of... so. Yeah. I, I mean, the sad person scale immediately springs to mind. It's going, why would you? <laughs> it's a whole other podcast. Yeah. Okay. So, they got them to fill in this questionnaire. They also asked them about uh, their risk-taking behaviours across a range of different areas. So it was things like thrill-seeking, sexual risk-taking behaviours, things like that. And then they got them to complete two computerised tasks where they had to either take a risk or not. So like one of them is a classic psychological task of you can have, you can choose to have $20 now or you can wait and have a, you know, one in four chance of $200, which do you choose? So psychopathy and narcissism were related to self-reported risky behavior of all types. And so if people were higher on these traits, they had uh, higher risk-taking behavior. And then it was also negatively related to risk judgments. So they tended to perceive things as less risky than people who were lower on those traits. Yeah, right. Yeah. And... This uh, relationship held when it was put into a multivariate analysis. So it was quite a strong relationship. Uh, Machiavellianism was positively related to thrill-seeking risk behaviour, which was curious. Yeah, it seems a bit odd. Yeah, it does. Not what I was expecting. And in terms of the computerised behavioural tasks, there was far less consistency in the correlations than with their self-reported real-life risk-taking behaviours. So that, yeah, risk-taking that kind of abstract, do you want the $20 or the, yeah, was far less predictive. So narcissism predicted both self-report and behavioural measures of risk. And uh, there was a marginally significant relationship between psychopathy and behavioural risk. So it it wasn't as clear-cut as for the self-report risk behaviour. And the last thing was that the more risky the adolescents perceived a behaviour, the less likely they were to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, which I guess goes against some of the sort of popular conceptions of adolescence as sort of, you know, taking risk wherever possible. But makes sense in terms of, you know, the higher the risk they do less. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, what I found interesting about it was that it wasn't just that adolescents who are high in psychopathy and narcissism were engaging in these behaviours, but they their judgment of the level of risk was lower. I found that quite interesting. So that they so maybe they do these behaviours more because they actually judge they yeah. judge the risk lower. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that would explain from a process perspective why, why they would do it. Yeah. 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 Which is kinda of interesting. It's not as dangerous as for well, they don't perceive it as as dangerous as Adolescents who aren't as high in those traits. Yeah, right. Yeah. And you would wonder then from an intervention perspective whether you try and teach them that this is actually dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, which way to come at it from the personality side or the behaviour. 
Because the problem with teaching, trying to teach psychopathy, so psychopaths to be more empathetic as a way of trying to treat psychopaths is that psychopaths do this empathy training modules or whatever and then they just use that to manipulate people more effectively. Yeah, exactly. That completely backfires. I can remember hearing a um, forensic psych talking a while ago that they tried to put empathy programs into prisons and they found that there were people who were getting more enjoyment retrospectively out of their crimes because they realised just (laughs) how distressed people were. Wow. Yeah, and so they realised that wasn't the way to go. No. (laughs) Not what you want. As far as I'm no, I'm no forensic psychologist, but as far as I understand, psychopathy you can't treat it. No, uh, no. And and basically, the whole of the Sopranos TV show was really about that. Mm. There's a whole bunch of interesting research from the UK where they tried to set up um, a couple of institutions where they had the sort of most dangerous people that mm-hmm. had been caught in the UK and tried to do essentially a sort of a therapeutic community where. Um, that it was staffed by, you know, psych nurses and psychiatrists and psychologists. And they tried to do, you know, a really intensive therapeutic programs. And over the course of years, they were getting marginal changes, yeah. but not speedy enough to kind of satisfy warrant, funders. Warrant the effort. I think yeah. Was, and look. why would you, I guess, the sort of public feeling of, you know, why spend all of this time on people who have done such horrific yeah, things as well. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that's well described in that psychopath test book yeah. that we talked about earlier. So yeah. if you want to read about that. Wonderful. So I've got a couple studies. I'll try and whip through them because I understand we've been going for a bit of time. This this paper is uh, by Adam R. Nichols and he's the lead author. It's called Personality Traits and Performance-Enhancing Drugs, the Dark Triad and Doping Attitudes Amongst Competitive Athletes. Hmm. Again, in personality and individual differences. Um, A journal of the night. (laughs) Journal of the night. I think actually my things we came across this week, it's also from that that (laughs) journal. Uh, So just really, really quickly. So they, they looked at, they did a survey of... Uh, amateur, semi-professional, professional athletes in the UK, 285 athletes, and looking at attitudes towards doping. Mm-hmm. They've found previously that attitudes towards doping influences whether actually doping occurs. This study didn't actually look at whether they doped. Yeah. Uh, I, I think sort of a logical uh, extension. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult because they sort of say 10 to 15% of athletes dope. Trying to get that samples would be much more difficult. So. Yeah. So what they found very, very quickly, so they had a sample of 71% amateur, 16% semi-professional and 13% professional athletes. Looked at doping attitudes and SD3, the dark triad short measure. The results found that 29% of the variance in doping attitudes, so almost a third, was explained by dark triad personality stuff which i thought was quite interesting machiavellianism was positive with attitudes towards doping okay makes sense there's a purpose to it yeah strategic orientation Mm -hmm. psychopathy positive and so they viewed that as it's a reckless behavior they're impulsive and reckless kind of like what you were talking about before they don't perceive it as as risky yeah so they just oh yeah let's do it and narcissism seemed to be unrelated Hmm. but maybe actually it's got nothing to do with narcissism it's got everything to do with like wanting to win Machiavellianism, something like that. Goal-oriented kind of 
Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. So they would kind of do that. So I thought that was really, really quick, neat study. Yeah, interesting. They did. And previously they'd not found any personality constructs related to doping attitudes. Okay. Although they measured self-esteem and called that as a personality thing. I wouldn't have said that self-esteem is a personality construct. No, no, me neither. It doesn't seem um, stable enough or pervasive enough or yeah, something. Like they talk about enough. optimism. Yeah. And optimism, I'd say, is a personality trait. Yeah. Right? But self-esteem? No. So well, that wasn't these authors, I don't mm. think. So uh, previously they found threat appraisals, benefit appraisals and morality. So viewing it as right or wrong as predictive mm. of doping attitudes. So the other paper that I wanted to do is called Do Bad Guys Get Ahead or Fall Behind? Relationships of the Dark Tribe Personality with Objective and Subjective Career Success. So this was written by Daniel Spurt in Journal of Social, Psychological and Personality Science 2016. Woohoo, our first new journal. So not a clean sweep for personality <laughs> and individual differences. Better luck next time. Yeah. <laughs> So, we could just edit this out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so, they wanted to look at whether narcissism, psychopathy and Machiavellianism differentially predicted objective and subjective career success. So, objective career success being salary or status mm-hmm. in terms of a leadership position and subjective career success in terms of feeling like you've been success- successful, yeah. whether you otherwise are. You know, narcissism might be related to achievement orientation, might be better at choosing success-related goals, Fault well in impression management, especially in selection contests like the presidential election, <laughs> and might help them to obtain more prestigious jobs, right? Sure. Psychopathy, they might be able to use. Psychopathy is interesting because pop culture is that psychopaths can, you know, head up the top of an organization yeah. and, and be, you know, use their psychopathy powers to do that, right? Certainly that was talked about in psych- psychopath tests. Yeah. But actually, the research sort of suggests actually otherwise that that psychopathy has attributes of impulsivity, emotional shallowness, lack of remorse. You really wouldn't want to work this person. No, and it tends to cause, um, I guess, some of, one of the papers that I found that I haven't talked about was about the disruption caused in yeah. a team environment and for yeah. stuff. <laughs> well, the, yeah. the, the next thing I've got written down is that they face strong occupational socialization yeah. problems which is a mouthful, but it's exactly what Amy's saying. You know, they don't do well when they're hired or promoted on past achievements and where career success is attained by the help of impactful third persons, they do poorly because of bad socialization. Yeah. So it's kind of really interesting. So Machiavellianism, you know, like we've been talking about the whole pod, willingness to exploit and manipulate others, you know, research shows that they can be perceived as abusive by subordinates Mm -hmm. and have lower organizational and supervisor and team commitment but is actually beneficial in obtaining leadership positions. Yeah. So they may not actually be well-liked. But they can crawl over whoever they need but to they get to the get top. they can get there, right? <laughs> yeah. They can manipulate, right? <laughs> yeah. So the study, they got early career stage people between the age of 25 and 34. So 934 Germans, hmm. it was a German study, working in private industry, working more than 50% full-time employment. And the, the sample was loosely representative of the German population. Okay. They looked at the dark triad, objective career success, salary or leadership, and, and a measure of subjective career success. So one, one and a half to two percent of career success indicators after control variables were accounted for was predicted by the dark triad. So a, a okay, little bit. So a little bit, yeah. A little bit. I don't know whether that's a lot or a little. Uh, what they found in line, loosely in line with their hypotheses of narcissism, 
and Machiavellianism was positively related to objective career success. So narcissism was associated with uh, salary, like okay. high salaries, but not position. Success and leadership for Machiavellianism, but not salary. That that kind of makes sense to me. If yeah. assuming that the kind of German employment works similarly to here, yeah. that there's an element of sort of negotiating and talking yourself up to get a salary raise. Yeah. That may come along with narcissism. Or a narcissist would seek out yeah. higher paid employment. Yeah, as um, an indicator of yeah. their success. Whereas a Machiavellian, because you, you, there's a lot of jobs out there where you can become a leader yeah. and you might not necessarily get a financial reward for it, mm. but the reward would be um, being up to... Would be able to manipulate and control people. Yeah. And, and those people might actually be quite a good manager in, mm. a, in a certain level. You can imagine that, right? Because they would be good at controlling a team. Yeah. Whereas a narcissist might just be more motivated by money. Yeah. Does that kind of make sense? So that's the way I understood it. Fulfill their own needs. Yeah. So whereas psycho- psychopathy, again, negatively related to all indicators of objective and subjective career success. So what they said was, hence, whether the bad guys get ahead or fall behind seems to depend on the type of dark trait. Okay. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Interesting. Agreeableness is negatively associated with career success. So <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So And both narcissism and Machiavellianism are low on agreeableness. Yeah. So those high in psychopathy might show this low level of, of agreeableness in different ways, so mainly impulsive or antisocial ways. Yeah. So that's probably why they, they fail. Yeah. If that kind of makes sense. It does. So, so if you want to succeed, don't be agreeable. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the... Uh, motto of the... <laughs> <laughs> motto of the night. I wish I'd learned that a while ago. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I guess the final thing I wanted to say was there is a, there's a whole lot of other stuff where dark triad is related to things like intimate partner violence. Yeah. Um, but also like mate selection. Like so yeah. like whether there was I, I didn't read them but like studies where they sort of said that uh, women were attracted to certain types of dark personality stuff. So it was really, really interesting reading mm. uh, if you're interested about it. And you can also go online and find some dark triad tests. We might even put a link up on the on the website. Yeah, may as well. We're going to go have a quick break and we'll be right back. Thanks for joining us. Suggest reasonable explanations for So you're listening to Two Shrinks Pod. Uh, this is a bit where we tell you to look at our website, uh, twoshrinkspod.com. Uh, you can also email us on twoshrinkspod at gmail.com. We're more than happy to receive any criticism, but also we're usually really interested in any suggestions that people have got for topics for the show. Uh, if you want to suggest something um, or want us to expand on something more or got us a question, uh, please drop us a line. Did you want to say anything? <laughs> I can't think of what to say. We'll just leave Amy's it really contributing tonight. Well, yeah. <laughs> she did bring the chocolate. I brought the chocolate. I'm here. She's here. She's present. Yeah. Two shrinks pod. Okay, so for the things we came across this week portion. This is our segment where we just talk about non-serious research or, well, I guess it's serious, but just stuff that we came mm, across. That different. We, we, this interesting. So I have a question for you, mm-hmm. which is, do you have misophonia? 
I don't know. What's miso funny? Well, is it, if it's miso related, like food wise, no, yeah, I'm not a big fan. No, no. So, um, I've been self-diagnosing today <laughs> with with something that I knew that I had, but I was curious whether there was any research out there about it. Yep. So my the article that I've chosen is called Mastication Rage, a review of misophonia, an under-recognized symptom of psychiatric relevance, question mark, <laughs> by George Bruxner. Shouldn't have you like gone up at the end, an unrecognized, was it? Under-recognized symptom of psychiatric relevance. <laughs> Much better. <laughs> so it's by George Bruxner and it was in Australasian Psychiatry in 2016. So misophonia is essentially a really strong negative emotional reaction to certain sounds. Um, so it's conceptualized in audiology as selective sound sensitivity. And for most people, uh, like the biggest trigger there is, is people chewing loudly. Yeah, right. And it invokes a strong sense of anger or hatred towards that person that's just sort of a gut reaction. What about baby boomers who haven't turned off the click, click, click on their like iPhone? Repetitive clicking is another when, when, one. When they're typing like like typing a text message. Yeah. So the most common one is the eating thing. Yeah. That's 81% of people with it respond to that. And that's certainly for me, it's like being in a movie where they amplify the sound and it's just that whoa, whoa, whoa. Yep. thing when I hear someone chewing. Yeah. <laughs> um, the second thing is breathing is about two thirds of people respond to people heavily breathing. <laughs> and then the other thing were um, responding to repetitive sounds like tapping, pen clicking, which probably the, the tapping on the phone yeah. thing would fit into that yeah. category or some speech sounds. So some people really don't like s kind of sounds. I really struggle with background noises. So essentially it's that uh, you're oversensitive to one particular or, or, you know, a selection of different sounds. Yeah. And when you hear them, you experience that emotional reaction that's quite intense. And it's sort of a, a rush of anger, irritation, hatred. Yeah. 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 I had this flight back from London. I think it was like London, Bangkok. It was this old 747 mm -hmm. and the, it was the AC and yeah. probably every, it was probably either like every 10 or 20 minutes, you go. <laughs> and it's still with and you. And I just could, that was in 2007. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you might have a touch of it. <laughs> and, but yeah, so that kind of stuff just drives yeah. me insane. E eating stuff, I don't really care about so much. Yeah, eating's my one. It's just... Yeah. And once I notice it, I can't turn it off. Oh. So for the rest of that meal, it's like someone's just eating in my ear. It's just, yeah. So this is a pretty new area. <laughs> there have been two studies with surveys and then a small proportion of case studies. And that's it. So this paper reviewed all of the available literature. It looks like there's about 20% of the population that have one of these sensitivities that reaches clinical significance. Based on two studies. Based on two studies of surveys of, of students and things like that. Yeah. Uh, so their hypothesis is that there's a heightened level of connectivity between auditory, autonomic and limbic systems. So sort of like a synesthesia where, say, there are some people who will hear music but will experience it as seeing colours. Mm. They're wondering whether perhaps for people with misophonia, 
they hear a sound and confuse it with an emotional um, response. So that's sort of the, the state of it, where it is now. And there's also, there's some queries as well about whether it should be considered a separate disorder. But given that there's only a handful of studies, it's probably a little little too early to start diagnosing people. Yeah. But is it was it? nice to know I'm not alone. <laughs> well, seriousness though, like it, that would make sense. Like, because yeah. you do hear about people kind of having things about stuff. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I mean, the point that they made was that while it's something that might be an irritation to some people, that if it gets to the point where you won't eat with other people or you're avoiding going out to be around people who make those noises yeah. or you lash out and respond violently. So it, the article started with a case study of a woman talking about hearing her daughter eat and jumping up and screaming at her. Then you could see how that would have a big impact on, on your life. Yeah. I mean, you know, I just sit there and seethe, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you I can mean, see I, the... Like I, I, yeah, like problems like with background noise, like a heater going in the background mm. or like... A kettle boiling when I'm on the phone. I don't know if that technically yeah. means. Hmm. We may have to research you. <laughs> so, what did you find? Do you know what fubbing is? No. I did not know what fubbing was. I was so I was looking for. How did you find fubbing then? I found fubbing because I was looking at personality and individual differences. The journal. <laughs> <laughs> um, hello to the editors, hmm. and uh, I was like, so the article is. Partner fubbing and depression amongst married Chinese adults. The the roles of relationship satisfaction and relationship length. Can you guess what fubbing might be? I'm I'm utterly confused and can only think of sounds. Partner fubbing is the extent to which your romantic partner or spouse uses or is distracted by his or her cell phone whilst in your company. Whoa. Yeah. That's fubbing? Yeah, that's fubbing. So I think it's phone snubbing. Oh, okay. Yep, yep, yep. So oh, is it PH? Yeah. Uh, uh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. This <laughs> is yeah, a problem with an audio media. <laughs> Considering t- the time spent on your phone may displace or reduce meaningful interactions with one's spouse, it is possible that the distractions caused by the partner fubbing would undermine relationship satisfaction. Therefore, the current study is going to examine effective partner fubbing on relationship satisfaction amongst Chinese adults and explore whether partner fubbing could exert significant indirect effect on depression via relationship satisfaction. So I've, look, to be straight up honest, I've only really skimmed this article. Yep. They got 243 married adults. And I see across the table they have a very handsome looking um, chart with boxes oh, and so arrows. So many boxes and arrows. Very, very impressive. So, or they suggest that the theory suggests that time spent on cell phones may displace m- meaningful interactions within couples and may undermine relationship satisfaction. And then, and then they cite this like quite clearly this like burgeoning area of smartphone use and mm. impact on that. And uh, I like it because it uh, confirms a whole lot of <laughs> notions that I had, you know, uh, the use of a smartphone is negatively correlated with perceptions of empathetic concern and closeness t- to the conversation partner. For instance, family members become frustrated when others do non-urgent activities on their phones in the presence of others. And caretakers who are absorbed in their smartphone have poor social interactions with their children. Yeah. I think I believe I mentioned that last pod. So, yes. Uh, 
Look, I won't go through the results really, uh, except the results indicated that partner fubbing had a negative effect on relationship satisfaction and relationship satisfaction had a negative effect on depression. I feel like I've read somewhere, and this could just be coming from the depths of my brain, but that even having a mobile phone on the table, not necessarily using it, but having it present influences the quality of the interaction. Yeah. I, I certainly yeah. get annoyed when someone is, uh, and this won't be a surprise to anyone who knows me, like yeah. if someone is on the phone and like sitting there and then you realise they're just like looking at the weather yeah. or, or something like completely inconsequential. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, me too. But maybe that's like my mesoph- misophonia. Misophonia? <laughs> misophonia. <laughs> Word of the day. Me- misophobia. <laughs> So, before we wrap up, I have a burning question that has been bothering me all week. Yes. You did not disclose your Harry Potter house. I didn't know it, to be honest. That's true. You had not done the appropriate pre-testing. So, (laughs) if you go back and listen to Pod 4, Amy talks about personality and Hogwarts houses, so uh, in Harry Potter. Yes, and I think proudly declares myself a Ravenclaw, or that might have been afterwards. I'm not sure. But anyway. <laughs> so, in the interest of science, I like I signed on to Pottermore. I didn't actually have a sign on to Pottermore. Although I was a bit disappointed you can't choose a username. I, I thought you could choose like, you know, oh. Hunter Goes to Hogwarts 77 <laughs> or something. Um, so, I looked at one, two, three, four, five, six, seven online quizzes. Excellent. So, Have you put them into a structural equation modeling kind of? I did actually think about, I think it's like Cohen's Kappa, oh, which is like a, as a, a interrelator. interrelator reliability that I used in my honours thesis. Yeah, that would mean too much. Um, but, it, yeah, like, you know. Okay. So, I looked at, I did five, five of the seven said I was Gryffindor. And then like the last two randomly say Ravenclaw and Slytherin. So, they were... I'd put you in Gryffindor. In the interest of science, I then went back and because in your article you talked about how if you <laughs> wanted to be in a particular yeah. house, then you would endorse attributes that would be in the lines of that. Yes. So I thought, okay, I will try and try and be in Slytherin and answer the question. The okay. Question yep. In terms of being in Slytherin. Yeah. So what was interesting was that six of the seven yep. quizzes I got into Slytherin. Okay, if you prete- if you pretended to be yeah, so, if I answered them in a yeah. way that I thought a Slytherin would, yeah, then I could get into it. What was interesting was Pottermore was the only one that I didn't get into Slytherin that put me into Ravenclaw. It, it's got to be the Sorting Hat because that's the only Sorting Hat endorsed by J.K. Rowling. That's right, and it's got the MMPI and the Neo and <laughs> all of it in there, and you just couldn't get past that one. That's it. So yeah. I thought that was kind of interesting. I'm glad we can remain friends. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought that was really interesting that Pottermore was the test. That I couldn't swing it the way I wanted yeah. it to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So oh, beautiful. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you for your research, and I feel like you could publish a paper on that. I did actually, uh, full disclosure, did look to see whether in any of the search engines that I could find a paper on factor analyzing or inter- like Cohen's alphas of uh, internet quizzes and see. Any so luck? If you don't know, no. no. So, so if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's basically there's a lot of statistical analyses you can do to test how good a questionnaire is. 
I love how nerdy that search is. <laughs> and that was, and that's the show. See you next time. Thanks for listening, and uh, yeah, see you next time.